Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the E-Squared podcast series, hosted on Law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. In this episode, we'll join Shook Chair Madeline McDonough and Shook Partner Phil Goldberg as they give an overview of ESG legal trends in the area of climate change. Let's join them. Welcome to E-Squared a podcast series examining ESG litigation risks. I'm your host, Madeline McDonough, the chair of Shook, Hardy & Bacon. I'm joined today with my partner, Phil Goldberg, who chairs Shook's public policy practice. Phil is a leading voice for common sense liability policies. He counsels businesses and their trade associations on some of the most cutting edge liability issues of the day. Phil, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Madeline. I really appreciate it. So there have been dozens of lawsuits filed in state courts by cities against oil and gas companies about the threat of burning fossil fuels. In fact, the Supreme Court is now considering jurisdictional issues on these cases. Let's bring Phil in to explore this a little bit more. Phil is interviewed time and time again by national media, including the New York Times, NPR, CBS, and many others. Phil, you describe this as a federal issue rather than a state issue. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. What these cases are all about, Madeline, is trying to regulate energy production and use and trying to get money to fund local infrastructure projects. They were born out of frustration that not enough was happening in Washington. So they decided to try to get judges to make energy policy instead of uh, Congress and the EPA. And the problem, as the U.S. Supreme Court explained back in 2011 in a case called AP versus Connecticut, is that you can't make national energy policy on a case-by-case ad hoc basis. Courts just don't have the tools to make these types of policy decisions. And so they dismissed the case, and the circuits followed in some of the other cases that were around at the time. And so the people behind these lawsuits went back to their legal laboratory and tried to find a way to bring these same kind of cases, try to regulate fossil fuels and develop money for local infrastructure projects, but they had to try to do it under state law in hoping that a state court won't follow uh, the Supreme Court precedent. Um, And so that's why these cases are really federal in nature. They're about trying to to, um, regulate uh, emissions and the use of fossil fuels. And let's be clear about one thing. We all agree that something needs to be done on climate change. That's not what this issue is about and not what this litigation is about. But it's really about making sure that those decisions are made in the right places, Congress and federal agencies and not state courts. So you view this approach as unproductive to really advancing issues relating to climate change? That's right, because what it's really trying to do at the end of the day is it's going to hamstring the ability of the federal government to do the things that they need to do on climate. Uh, and you're going to have these policies made on, a, on a, a case-by-case basis at the states. It's going to drive up energy costs. Uh, and that's something that a lot of people, especially right now uh, in today's day and age, can't afford. It's going to make it more difficult on national security issues when you're dealing with energy security, which modern day um, events really brings to the fore. Uh, and so it, and it's going to make, it's going to end up shifting a lot of production of fossil fuels and a lot of production and manufacturing overseas to places that don't care about the environment the way we do in the United States. And so it's actually going to make things worse from a climate perspective, and it's going to tie the hands of the federal government on all the things that they need to do to establish the right energy policies for us. 
What do you think would be productive or good ideas about moving the ball forward on developing a more balanced approach to the management of climate change? Well, it's got to start with innovating ways to source and use energy much more effectively and more efficiently and more sustainably than we're doing today. I, I think everybody understands that the you know electric electrification was called the, one of the greatest advancements of the 20th century and you know from a, a living perspective standard living perspective from a healthcare perspective every aspect of life was in, in enhanced by electrification over the 20th century but how we got to where we are today and how we're going to keep doing that in the future has to change it has to be different we have to find ways to be able to be energy consumers but in a way that doesn't hurt the climate doesn't hurt the planet and the only way to do that is through innovation it's making sure that we have the right technologies in order to to consume energy produce energy and not impact the climate and this litigation can't do any of that which is why this litigation is really a distraction We will continue our conversation with Shook partner Phil Goldberg after this. Shook, Hardy & Bacon is a premier trial firm serving clients in the health, science, and technology sectors. Whether you're crafting an ESG policy or resolving claims through negotiation or litigation, Shook attorneys build on decades of experience and are positioned to provide end-to-end support. We are back with Shook Public Policy Co-Chair Phil Goldberg. Phil, let's talk about our firm for a moment. Many of these ESG issues are just starting to surface. Our firm has been around for more than 130 years, and we're primarily known as a premier litigation firm. But could you talk for a moment about the advocacy and guidance that Shook offers clients in difficult, cutting-edge areas? Absolutely. Uh, Our public policy group focuses on cutting-edge policies where plaintiff's lawyers are typically trying to be creative in in figuring out how to expand liability uh, for businesses. And a lot of businesses right now are under uh, a lot of pressure and and frankly, uh, want to be involved in the discussion over climate change and want to be doing things to try to improve their operations uh, from a climate perspective and talk to their employees and talk to their stakeholders about what they're doing and how they're trying to advance the ball. The problem is every time they do that, you have a bunch of plaintiff lawyers looking at that saying, how do we now use that to leverage against the company and hold them accountable for that and, and make them liable? Uh, whether they didn't do enough and it's aspirational statements uh, or it's, or they're creating some you know perceived misperception that they're trying to come up with as to what they're saying, even if what they're saying is entirely true. Uh, and that's where we can really help companies navigate that and try to keep them on a safe ground as possible to try to uh, keep their, be able to say what they're doing, talk to the people that matter to them, uh, be part of the solution and try to avoid the litigation that you know is invariably hitting a lot of uh, industries. One of the things I know our firm is very focused on is trying to identify and anticipate emerging trends. Any ideas about what is around the corner in the ESG world for climate change specifically? So the emerging trends that we're seeing are are trying to use any statement that a company makes about their operations, even if they're 100% true, uh, in an effort to try to either silence them for political reasons, 
um, or sue them to try to just generate money for, um, you know, for certain litigation. We're seeing uh, ways to try to get around traditional product liability claims by using public nuisance or consumer protection act, which really are, are product related claims. Uh, it's it's all these areas where the plaintiff lawyers are saying we don't want to be stuck to the traditional ways that we used to sue companies. We want to create new and interesting ways that you know sometimes are also just about trying to achieve a political goal. Uh, and so just keeping the litigation going, even if it's not, and you know, they don't think they're going to win, they're get, often getting funded by, you know, foundations or environmental, you know, advocates that just want to sue these companies for the, the, the uh, political and media benefit of doing so. Uh, and so th that's one of the things that we, we're working with our clients to try to fight back against because we want the judges to understand often what, what is really going on here. Are these real issues that need to be resolved and take up the court's time, or are they really political or alternative ways of trying to get something done that, that isn't really useful or beneficial to, um, to the ESG efforts in, of the country as a whole? I know you're a longtime scholar and student of the Supreme Court. Are there some issues coming up at the Supreme Court in the climate change area that you're watching? Yes. Um, so uh, the, the climate litigation started about 20 years ago, and the first case that went up to the Supreme Court was a, a case called AP versus Connecticut, and that's where the Supreme Court said these are really uh, national legislative issues of concern, and that barring the law from an individual state uh, would be inappropriate. Then about a year or two ago, we had a second round of cases, and one of them went up to the Supreme Court again, and that was on whether these are somewhat federal court cases and should be heard in federal court, or can they be uh, stated as state law claims to be remanded uh, back to state court? And there was a, a, a very nuanced issue dealing with the federal officer removal statute that the Supreme Court weighed in on. And now the, the uh, circuits have, are going back and revisiting all their rulings on remand based on looking at the entire order, not just federal officer removal, because of what the Supreme Court said a couple years ago. And, and we're expecting that next round may end up back in the Supreme Court um, as, as the circuits somewhat disagree with each other and are trying to figure out how all this works, whether there's federal issues or state issues, and where these cases can go. Uh, so over the next year, we expect uh, at least you know, a couple of cert petitions to be filed and, and the court potentially to, uh, to grab the cases again and give a little bit more guidance. Because these cases are really, not, really on the cutting edge of what even is allowable in litigation. And so getting the guidance of the Supreme Court is really helpful. Well, thank you for your time today, Phil. I know this is a multi-tentacled issue. Uh, very few things are black and white in this area. So thank you for helping us try to sort through some of the gray areas. Much appreciated. Absolutely. That brings us to the end of this episode in the E-Squared podcast series, hosted on law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy & Bacon. Next time, Shook Chair Madeline McDonough will discuss the right to disconnect from work with London solicitor Allison Newstead. They will take a global look at how policies vary from country to country. I'm Scott Ferguson. Thanks for listening. For more legal analysis and insights, please visit law.com.